Let's uh, bow for prayer together and then we'll begin our time in the Word. Father, your Word is truth and as we guard our hearts and guard our minds, we ask that you'd help us to have understanding, to be diligent, to have a humble heart as we come to this truth. Father, you have ordained the means of the preaching of your word to draw the lost to yourself, to sanctify your people, to grow them, and so help us at this time. And again, we're overwhelmed with gratitude at your goodness to us, and may you bless your sheep, your people, and fill them, I pray, with the knowledge of you and a desire to become more like your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a little different today in coming to church and not sleeping in our own beds and, and sleeping in someone else's home and driving to church today. And it was just a little odd. We haven't done that in almost in over nine years now. And if I uh, don't match today, it's because we're living out of boxes. And I had the hardest time finding a pair of dress shoes. And so I don't know where Ben is, but I, I tried to, there you are. I tried to wrap brown shoes today, but I had to pull out an old scuffed up pair. And um, what a joy it is uh, to be with the body of Christ and to, to come and worship together and, and to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to grow and change into his image together. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, we, we had a real fruitful week in, in moving and getting everything uh, moved in. We're still living out of boxes. Our backs are sore, but our new place is, is coming together nicely, and we're grateful for that. Why don't you do this? Grab your Bible, turn to John 17. That's where we're going to be today. And as you find your place, you know there's a lot of different ways you can get to know someone. There's a lot of different first impressions you can have when you meet someone for the first time. In many ways, you can kind of know a little bit about someone with the way they shake your hand. And, and for those of you, I know the men, I've been kind of hard on you for several years. Uh, the women have rebuked me many times to stop giving them dead fishes. So I've, I've tried to firm up my handshakes with you. But you can tell a lot about a person, how they shake your hand. Another way is how prompt they are how diligent they are by being on time to things. You could tell a lot about the uniform somebody wears, whether they're a police officer or a firefighter or military or even what sports team somebody plays for. How about this, a person's accent, where are they from? Sometimes you can tell where they're from by the way they speak a certain language. But one way you could tell a lot about an individual is by listening to them pray. But I understand in a public setting, we can wax eloquent and we can say a lot of things and, and pray a certain way that may not reflect the way we pray in private. But I would say this to you today. One of the best ways you get to know someone is to maybe get a glimpse as to how they pray when they're all by themselves. Not so much in public, that says a little bit, but how do they pray when it's just them and the Father alone? And that's what this passage does for us. It gives us a, a VIP pass into the private prayer life of Jesus. And we find this here in John chapter 17. It unveils for us really what is the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6 and Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, many call that the Lord's Prayer. But in reality, you should call that the Disciples' Prayer. Because 
what Jesus prays in that prayer really cannot be attributed to Jesus. You know, for instance, Jesus never had to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. We need to pray that though, do we not? We need to confess our sins. And what Jesus prays here is something we really cannot truthfully pray. We would not pray for God to glorify us. Why is that? Because we are not worthy of praise. And we're not worthy of glory. So the way to really understand someone, the way to really truly get to know someone is to really get a glimpse into their prayer life. And that's what we get today with Jesus. So here's what we're going to see. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, the apostles who are there. And then verses 20 through 26, which is going to be the focus of today's message, Jesus prays for us, those who would believe now in the church age. So here's what you see here. The root of the church is Christ. The branches that would grow out are really the apostles, the disciples. And then the leaves that sprout and grow, that's us. That's us today who believe in what the word actually teaches. So here's the context of this. The upper room discourse has really ended. Most would say that Jesus has now changed his location and has gone from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. And here's what we'll find as Jesus prays. Much like you find with the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, how, how different is it the way those two men pray? The tax collector's crying out for mercy. He's beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then how does the Pharisee pray? God, I thank you that I'm what? Not like other men. He, he compares himself with others in a very prideful way. He says he's better than other people. And what you get there is a glimpse of the man's heart. You get a glimpse of, of the tax collector's heart. He recognizes he's a man in need of mercy. And so today, just like our prayer lives reveal our hearts, you get a real good picture here of Jesus' heart as he prays. Jesus will pray that his submission will bring glory to the Father, that his disciples will be kept and sanctified, sanctified by his truth, which is his word, and then he'll pray for the branches that will go out to the far reaches of the world. Let's pick it up in verse 1, if you would. I want you to see what his submission leads to. Jesus' submission will lead to his glorification. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Something important I want you to see here in these verses, and that's the phrase, the hour. Now, about 17 times in John's gospel, he uses this phrase, but it's different in the sense that he used it before. Before he would use it, my hour has not yet come. Now Jesus says, my hour has come. And this would be the hour where Jesus would vindicate all of his claims. The fact that he is divine. 
that he is the Son of God, that he is exactly who he claimed to be, that he will make salvation available for sinful people like me, for sinful people like us, so our sins could be forgiven. And John wants you to know throughout this book why this is in your Bible. This is in your Bible so you know, friends, the cross was not a mistake. The cross was not a plan B. The cross was a plan according to, and you find this throughout John 17, the preordained plan of the Father. Jesus willingly went to the cross, and he says essentially, this is why I came. This is why I'm here. I came to die, and I came to rise again from the dead. And this is what Jesus wants. Glorify the Son. And he does this. How does Jesus do this? He does this by submitting to the Father. And he does this through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, which would vindicate all of his claims, that he is indeed exactly who he claimed to be. So how do you know if a teacher is divine? Not by them simply saying they're divine. Jesus backed it up, and how did he do this? He did it by rising again from the dead. Listen to the words of Romans 1 verse 4, which articulates this well. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the cross is not his defeat. The cross is his vindication. In verses 2 through 3, Jesus, you find here, gives divine life to sinful individuals. So it's not just life like oxygen and blood flowing through your veins, physical life. The life you have as a Christian, it's divine. It is a supernatural life that God gives to us. And then you get to verse 3, what I think is one of the key texts of all of the New Testament. It comes down to one. How does someone get this life? This is salvation, I believe, in a nutshell. One of the clearest articulations, I believe, of how someone comes to eternal life. Only the one who is divine, truly God, can give this divine life. And it's narrowed down to one. So friends, we don't go looking for life in the church. We don't go looking for life in our works. We don't go looking for life in what we have done, our own personal righteousness. We don't go looking for life in a religion or through Buddha or through Muhammad or through whatever God works for you. And you don't get it through a pope and you don't get this life even through a pastor or through a head of a denomination. You get this life through a person. So here's what God does in verse 3. He defines eternal life in a person, and then he determines eternal life. And where does that come from? A person. The definition of eternal life, the determination of eternal life is found in Christ. So here's this in a nutshell for you. To know Christ is to know God. To reject Christ is to reject God. To be reconciled with Christ is to be reconciled with God. To believe the claims of Christ is to believe the claims of God. To be accepted by Jesus means that you're accepted by the Father. You're accepted by God. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. And I would say this to you today, friend. If you happen to be here today and and you're wrestling with this whole thing, what do I believe? What is life really all about? What's going to happen when I take my last breath? I'm not asking today, friend, if you're a church member. 
I'm not asking if you've come here your whole life. I'm not asking if others think you're a Christian or maybe you just wandered in here because somebody invited you to church and and this is all new to you as it was to me at one point in my life when I was 17 years of age. Listen, friends, today, despite the fact every one of us in this building today have a lot of sinful baggage, if you come to Christ today and you call out to him, just as the tax collector did in Luke chapter 18. And you call out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God will forgive you of your sins based on what Jesus did on the cross and him rising again from the dead. And he will give you a new heart. He will give you new life. And your sins will be washed away. And friend, you will forever be his child. What a truth. What a blessing. What a privilege to be his. And this is what Jesus does with this. How is he glorified? He gives life that only God can give. No one else. No one else can atone for sin. No one else can forgive sin. No one else can adopt you into God's family, justify you, and keep you eternally secure. And you find in verses 4 through 5, he is the reason that he can give us life. His work was to teach. His work was to clarify who God is, to demonstrate who God is, and to be truthful and faithful to the claims that he had, despite the consequences of that. He says in verse 5 here, glorify me, treat me as I deserve, literally. What does Jesus deserve from you? What does he deserve from me? He deserves glory. He deserves praise. He deserves adoration. It's interesting, after three faithful years of teaching, preaching, being completely submitted to the Father, what happened after roughly three years of ministry for Jesus? He was crucified. He was lied about. He was maligned. He was hated. And Jesus' submission, his faithful living, eventually led to mistreatment, misunderstanding, being despised, being rejected by men. And here's what you find in this passage here. The highest, who is Christ, went to the lowest, and that was to die on a cross, and then to be buried, and then to rise again, and then once again to ascend to the highest, a place of authority, a place of power, a place where he belongs, at the right hand of the Father. Now let's look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Here's how he prays for his disciples. These are the the men who are there following him. Look at verse 6, if you would. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So God chose, here's what you want to see here in this passage, God chose these disciples out of the world, and what's the proof of that? Notice the word you find in the text several times, kept. They are kept by God. The apostles are the stones. The foundation is Christ. He is the foundation. Now here's the work that Jesus prays for. Follow the flow of the text here. And you're going to understand the passage a bit more clearly. Look at verses 7 through 8. They held to the belief that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. There was no debate about that. They submitted to his words. They trusted his words. They believed his words were truthful. And when a true follower of Jesus, I believe this is really true what happens. Because at one time in my life, I rejected this book. I maligned it. I made fun of it. And I persecuted people who believed in it. And I made fun of things like Genesis 1. I made fun of things like uh, the flood. I made fun of this, the, the promises the Bible gives about the future, about knowing for certain you can go to heaven when you die. Trust me, Mike Hess has made fun of all of those things. But here's what happened. By God's grace, when he opened up my eyes to the truth of the gospel, and, and I came to faith in Christ, I honestly, by God's good gift and his grace, I never had a problem believing the Bible. So when I read Genesis 1, I accept it. When I read Genesis 3, I believe Adam and Eve were literal people. And when I read Genesis 6 through 9, I believe there was a literal flood that came upon this earth. And Noah was a literal dude. And, and it was just his family that was saved. And God brought all of those animals into the ark. And when I read about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I believe that with all of my heart. And I believe when somebody's heart is changed, they know the truth. And I believe to some extent in their life, they're going to submit to that truth. And there's going to be a change in their lives because of that truth. And not only that, we're going to understand a lot of it. By God's grace, things we did not understand before because the Spirit of God indwells us. And this is what Jesus does. And I'm going to jump to verse 17. He ties their growth and he ties their sanctification to truth. And what's truth? Because the next chapter, Pontius Pilate's going to ask that question. What is truth? Well, you find this here in verse 17. Say it with me. Your word is truth. So here's the great thing about this. The apostles all came from different homes. Some of them had different backgrounds. I'm sure they had different opinions about different things, and, and the way they did things might have been different. But here's what you found as the apostles went out and preached the gospel. They had one unified message. It never varied. Their gospel message was cohesive, it was coherent, it was clear. And you also hear, see here that Jesus keeps his followers. So we say a lot of things like ex, you know, that's maybe an ex-spouse, or um, that's an ex-employer, or uh, that's an ex-player for a certain team. They're, they're an ex, but you know what they're never, 
ever will be. There is no such thing as an ex-Christian. There's no such thing. And you find here, what do I base that on? I base it on a number of passages, but here's a good place to start. Once somebody is a Christian, they are kept not by their performance. Praise God for that. Because my performance is nothing to write home about. They're kept by whose power? By God's power. So we can never say this person's an ex-Christian. They're kept by God's power. I like what J. Vernon McGee wrote years ago. Dogs will go back to their vomit. Pigs go back to their slop. And true sons and daughters will always go back to their father. And here's how Jesus prays for his followers in this age. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. And that, friends, is the end of the introduction. You're still with me. It would be a good time for an amen, but that's where we're starting today. And, you know, hey, it's my last message, so why not make it a long one? Amen? Amen, Houston, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see how Jesus prays for us. We see how he prays for himself. You see how he prays for his disciples. Now let's see how he prays for us. And the first thing Jesus prays for is this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that we would be one. Pick it up in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, these here would be the disciples who are there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now I want to pause here. I think that's us. We believe because of their word. That's what we believe. So I think that's us today in the church age. Now look at verse 21. What does he pray for? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. So on the last night of Jesus' life, knowing the horrific death he would die on the cross, what does he do? He prays for future generations of those who would believe in him. Just like you parents pray for your children. And I trust you pray in specific ways as to who they will marry and how they will raise their children. And you pray for your grandchildren who they will marry, and that they would come to faith in Christ, that they would serve Christ. And for some, you in your context today, there's a few of you, you pray for your great-grandchildren, and you pray that they would come to know Christ, and you pray for them. This is what Jesus is doing for his future followers, and essentially, he's praying for us. He's praying for our church, our testimonies, our growth in the Lord, and here's what he does here. Notice in verses 21 through 23, here's what you find in Christianity. Christianity through the gospel, reconciles the worst of sinners like me to the one perfect and true and holy God. Reconciles us to him. And because that is possible through what Christ has accomplished, now, now here's a dynamic that we struggle with, that, that we as Christians can struggle with quite often. Now, we can be reconciled with one another. 
we can be reconciled with each other. And this unity we have is not just so we get along, it's not so life is comfortable, and it's not so life is easy. According to the text here, this unity has a purpose. Here's one of the purposes of this. This unity should be here so we have credibility with a lost and dying world that is walking in darkness. So here Jesus identifies what unity is and he exemplifies, really, what unity is. And how does he do this? He points us to the relationship that him and his Father have. That same kind of unity that is within the Trinity is really the same kind of unity that we should pursue as followers of Christ. And here's a great way to understand this. I'm not sure where I got this. This is just the way I've... I've understood this, and I'm sure somebody taught this to me way back in the day. But a good way to understand Christian unity is this. It's nature, it's purpose, and it's mission. Okay, so the nature of our unity is our oneness in Christ. The purpose is to glorify God and to give credibility to the world that what we believe is right, it's true, it's taken root in our lives. And the mission is to make disciples, is to make disciples for God's glory. We're more effective doing that if we're unified together. We're more ineffective if we're not unified together. So think of the nature, think of the purpose, and think of the mission of unity. And true biblical unity in Christ shows the world what gospel-centered Christianity really is. The nature of it, what it's all about, that we're faithful, that we're general, that our hearts have been generally changed in a general way in our lives, not just in one area, but in every area. Our lives have been changed. We're new in him. Now, I want you to note this. Being unified does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we agree on all peripheral or maybe some preferential things or even opinions. Friends, I've been here for nine years, and there's still some of you living in rebellion. Some of you still root for the wrong football teams and the wrong baseball teams. And, and God still loves you, and I praise God for that. But it doesn't mean we all agree on that stuff. It doesn't even mean we all have the same preference regarding music. But here's what it does mean. The nature and what you find the purpose and the mission of our unity remains the same. That never changes. And I think you'd agree with this. Would you agree we live in a world that, for the most part, is marked by its divisiveness and hate? How many of you would say that? This this is a world that's just marked by that. And sometimes that could infiltrate our hearts even as believers, as followers of Christ. But according to this passage, again, let's go back to the Word and let's see what Jesus says here in this passage. According to this passage, Jesus says there will be a group of people who are different than the world who are so marked by love, whose hearts have been so supernaturally transformed that despite various backgrounds and despite differences in many different ways, they have one commonality, one common union, and that is Christ. That's what Jesus is praying for here. They're committed to loving one another. And even though they're not uniformed together, here's what they'll do. They'll love each other as a family. They'll love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, according to this text, this unity, which you find here, it gives credibility to our claim. It'd be like me saying, you know, as a side job, I work a second job as a ballerina. I'm not offended if you laugh at that, but nobody here would believe that. 
Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into with that one, but you would never believe that because there's no credibility with that claim. But if we say we love one another, or if we say we follow Christ and we love Christ, friends, that has to be there. That love, that unity must be there. So now we can do something by God's grace that I would say no other group can do. No other group can reproduce this. We can love each other supernaturally. We can be unified together in Christ. I like what Francis Schaeffer wrote years ago. Love is the true sign that someone is a Christian. And when the world does not see this in our lives, they have the right to categorically reject our message. Thomas Manton, the the well-known Puritan, said nearly 400 years ago, he said this, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And I'd say this, the opposite is true. Unity in the church, I think, would breed a curiosity in the world. What is it? Why do you love each other so much? Why are you so one in Christ? And friends, where does all this come from? Look again at verse 21. Jesus said this, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in them. All of us who are in Christ, who is divine. Listen to how Paul encouraged other churches early on in the church age, writing about this this very sensitive issue. In 1 Corinthians 12, listen to verses 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of the same spirit. Listen to Ephesians 4 verse 3. This drum continues to get beat in the New Testament. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians 2 verse 2. Paul commending what was a good church. He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen to Romans 15 verses 5 through 7. Just listen to the welcoming of these verses. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why is that? Because we all share his life. We don't just share a last name. We don't just share a common ethnicity. We share something much deeper, far more important, and that is life, divine life that God has given to us in Christ. So, friend, you want to pause here if you ever want to hold a grudge. You want to pause here, take some real deep, long pauses and think about what Scripture says before you think it's okay to have animosity towards another believer. Take some pause. Take some caution, friend. Think of this. That person, that Christian, shares the same life that you share. You don't just breathe the same oxygen. You share the same life, the divine life that Christ has given to every single one who has come to faith in him. And so when you come together, it's your Thanksgiving meal. I I highly doubt anybody here does this as a family, that when you come together at a Thanksgiving meal and you're carving that turkey, I don't think anyone says here, you know what, who made the most money last year? They get the best part of this turkey. Nobody says that. 
That'd be foolish to say that. Who, who had the best report card last year? Let's, let's make sure they get the best part of the apple pie. Who, who, who performed the best this past year? I have to admit, when I'm sitting there at Thanksgiving dinner and somebody gets the piece of turkey that I want, I have to pray a little bit and think, you know, I like that nice, juicy, white piece of turkey. Anyone else like that? You know, part of the turkey? I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I want. And we don't say, you know what? You don't deserve this as much as me. You know what we do? You feast together as a family. You're a family together. And friends, this is the blessing of a local church. That's what we are. We're a family. We're one, and this is exactly what Jesus would pray for. You don't just share a pew with someone. You don't just share an auditorium with someone. You don't just share a name on a church membership role. Friends, we share life. We share life together. A divine life that only Christ could give to us. Here's the second thing Jesus prays for. He, he prays for us to see his glory. Quickly, look at verse 24 if you would. And Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' use of glory here is a little different. You want to understand this contextually because he's talking about the future. He's speaking here eschatologically. I mean, he's talking about a future glory. And this, this verse goes back to what John recorded in John 14, verses 1 through 3. You, you know the words well, that where I am, there you may be also. To me, that's the greatest dynamic of heaven, is to be where Christ is. Where I am. So Jesus' followers, think of the inner circle that many call it, Peter, James, and John, got a real small glimpse of that glory. Think of Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw Jesus clothed in that glory. So why is your future so glorious? Why is your future so glorious? You know, the only reason we get concerned about the future is we have a smaller picture of it. We're not thinking of the grand scheme of it. The big picture of your future Christian friend, is a glorious future. Why is it? Because where I am, there you will be also. What a privilege to think about that. It's a text I've preached in dozens upon dozens of funerals right here in this auditorium. Where I am, there you may be also. Jill just sang a song about Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And, and what is the good there? Verse 29 defines that. For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then it gets even better. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, mark it down, he also glorified. Every single last one of them will have a glorified body in heaven. Jesus indwells us through his spirit and all believers, every single one of them, God will bring safely home. So think about this for a moment. Look at where we will spend eternity. Verse 24 gives you the beginning point of your salvation from eternity's past and points you to the end, your salvation, for everyone, for every true follower of Christ. So when you see other believers, I want you to think of this. 
Instead of thinking, boy, you know, I'm really glad I'm not going home with that person today. Let's not think of that. Let's think, this, this will give us some pause here. I will spend eternity in the same place with them. I will spend eternity in heaven with them. We will spend eternity together. And guess what? In heaven, I'll be worse than texting you all the time. It'll be worse than that. We'll spend eternity forever and ever and ever. Now, friend, can we, can we just ask this question in regards to that? Does that help us treat each other a little bit differently? We'll spend eternity with each other forever and ever and ever. We will have a glorified body. We share the same life. We all also share the same eternal destiny. And that brings us to our last point here. Jesus wants his love to be in us. You get a VIP pass here and do a glimpse of the heart of the Savior, how he prays for us. And he wants his love to be in us. Look at these precious verses. Look at verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Every religion in the world, so if you're wrestling with this today and you say, what makes Christianity right and the other is wrong? It's a valid question I believe the Bible answers in many ways. But you might be asking, okay, what's the difference? Every religion of the world never gets you to the point where you know something, where you know where you go when you die, where you know that your Savior is resurrected from the dead, where you know that your God will complete what he finished, where you know that God will be faithful to every single one of his promises because all of those other religions depend on human performance. But praise God, Christianity depends on the finished work and the performance of Jesus Christ. It depends upon him. And here's what Jesus uses here in this text. Five times you find the word know. You know this, K-N-O-W. Why is this here? Of all the people who know the truth in this world, you know what God does? He narrows it down to one group. And who is it? It's those who believe in him. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verse 31. Of all the people who know the truth, you find back in verse 3, It's those who've come to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what do we know and understand? Let me go through just a few things here. I know I'm a sinner because of what the Word says. I know Jesus died and rose again for sinners. I know His Word is absolute truth. It's sufficient. I know that where I'll go when I die. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know how the world was created. I know that uh, man has dominion over the created order, and, and I know why there's so much sin in this world, because it goes back to Genesis 3. I know Jesus is coming back again. I know that saints are forever secure in Christ. I know from God's word how we can become more like Christ. This doesn't make us smarter. It just means that God has opened up our eyes. We also know this. We know how to love. We know how to forgive. We know how to be patient. We know how to be gracious. We know how to be kind. We know how to be generous. We know how important marriage is. We know the definition of marriage. 
We know that marriage is between one man and one woman, together, forever in the covenant of marriage. Not an idea we came up with, but it's what we find in God's word. We know that. We know the purpose of church, why we're together as a church. And the gospel teaches you that we can know God personally and have full assurance. We can know this, and it's narrowed down to one group. Not the smartest, not the richest, not the most popular, but those whom God has opened up their eyes to the truth of the gospel. In other words, Christians. Christians, those who've come to faith in Christ. There's something else in this text I'll point out quickly here. Jesus does not just show us where we can find love. He shows us we can actually demonstrate it. Look at his words here. The love you have for me, praying to his Father, may it be in them and that I myself may be in them. So love is not just to be known about. Love is to be demonstrated. It's to be demonstrated in our lives. And Jesus knew he'd be gone. He knew his followers saw manifested perfect love in action. And now he prays this love would be in us. And here's Jesus' prayer for his followers. I'll put it in a nutshell here. That the Father's own love for the Son would transform our hearts in such profound ways that it would be undeniable and unmistakable that we truly know Christ. That we are truly in him. And friends, this love is shown in so many ways. It has been in your lives with the way we care for physical and spiritual needs of others. It's shown when we're quick to forgive and overlook offenses and, and give people the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's, it's there when we refuse to hold grudges. Refusing to harbor bitterness in our hearts. It's, it's there when we listen well to others and And we understand that person's more important than me. And we have the mind of Christ. It's there with gracious speech. It's there when we speak the truth in love, but but we do it with boldness, but we also do it lovingly. And we aim for a person's heart. It's, It's there in the way we love our spouse and how a heartfelt commitment looks to them. And how so many of you have modeled this, what a biblical marriage is. This is our witness to the world. And praise God, that is our unity and our love in Christ. Let's commit our hearts to him together, shall we? Let's, let's ask God's blessing on his word, and let's ask God to use us in a great way. Father, uh, may we never um, stop being overwhelmed by your great love for us. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul and our life and our all. Father, we love you only because you first loved us. And as a church, Father, I uh, commit this church body to you. These are your people. These are your sheep. There is no better shepherd than you. There is no one who loves this church more than you. There is no one who has done more for this church than you. And Father, you are so trustworthy. And I thank you that the head of this church is Christ. And may you continue to grow, to mold, and may this church continue to be built upon your all-sufficient word. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.